History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spectacular people welcome to this 451st episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane and this is kelly kelly what do you think about thousand island dressing i'm not a huge fan i am <laughs> and i have honest. been ever since i was a kid what's wrong with you i know it's my mom's favorite also <laughs> yeah i don't eat it as much now because i'm trying to watch what I eat and things like that. But boy, as a kid, I would just slather that Thousand Island dressing on my salads and then I'd eat salad anytime. Well, did you know that it actually was inspired by actual Thousand Islands? I had no idea. It is. And we're going to be talking about them on this episode. This was suggested by our listener, Amy Johnson. We're going to talk about several haunted locations in the Thousand Islands, which are up in New York. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spectacular crew, Melissa, Erica, who spells her name with an R-I-C-K-A, Samantha, and Deborah with an A-H. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now, this moment, Naughty. Who remembers playing peekaboo as a child? Would it surprise any listeners to think that birds enjoy or benefit from this game as well? Let us introduce you to the Black Heron. There are many different ways that birds can secure the diet they require, whether it's seed, insect, or other prey. If you happen to have enjoyed the game of peekaboo at any time, you may hold something in common with this avian. The black heron uses its wings like an umbrella or sunshade. For anyone who's enjoyed the BBC's Talking Animals, you may remember the game of Nighttime Daytime. Nighttime! Daytime! Nighttime! Daytime! This was an example of the black heron who uses their wings to create an umbrella-type canopy to lure any prey into the shade of their wings or to simply conceal their identity prior to pouncing on their meal. This strategy is used by many egrets and herons. Animals are amazing, and the thought that some utilize a game similar to humans' peekaboo to thrive certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of September on the 9th, in 1956, Elvis Presley made his first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. Some may know that The Ed Sullivan Show had banned any appearances by Elvis due to the King's perceived obscenity by the establishment. However, after the Steve Allen Show beat out the ratings of Ed Sullivan's show on July 1, 1956, due to Elvis Presley's guest spot, Mr. Sullivan quickly changed his tune. 
Colonel Parker knew he had the advantage over Sullivan and negotiated the highest fee ever paid by the show to any act at that stage in time. In an unusual twist, Elvis did not actually step onto Ed Sullivan's stage for this first performance. Instead, he was filmed in Hollywood due to being in the middle of filming his first movie, Love Me Tender, in Los Angeles. His first song was Don't Be Cruel and continued on for four songs in total. Elvis performed two additional times on The Ed Sullivan Show for that contracted series. Although many people remember hearing that Elvis was only shot from the torso and above to try and censor the king's gyrations, it wasn't until his third time on the show that Elvis the Pelvis, as he was dubbed, was intentionally filmed from the waist up. Diane was saying the name of Thousand Island Dressing was inspired by an archipelago of 1,864 islands that are in both Canada and the United States. Legends surrounding the creation of the dressing are interesting, but even more intriguing are the stories of the hauntings connected to the islands. These islands are dotted with villages, forts, and castles, making them the perfect setting for ghost stories and legends. Join us as we look at the history and hauntings of some of these locations in the Thousand Islands. Before Europeans started building homes on the islands, they were called Manitouana by the indigenous people, which means Garden of the Great Spirit. The Ojibwa people and Iroquois Confederacy lived on several of the islands. The Thousand Islands became a hot vacation destination starting during the Gilded Age, and that continues today. This group of islands can be found along the St. Lawrence River, stretching from Lake Ontario to Lake Champlain. It's easy to see their connection to the Gilded Age and the castles that pop up around on various islands. The rich made this area their retreat. But before that, the islands played host to war. There were many skirmishes here between the British and Americans during the War of 1812. Leftover remnants of that war can be seen in the ruins of forts and historical sites like the State Battlefield Historic Site and Fort Wellington. And there are several museums dedicated to the maritime history of the area. Kelly, do you know what it takes for an island to be considered part of the Thousand Islands? Not a clue. Not a lot. (laughs) Get a load of this. It has to have one square foot of land above water year-round and support at least two living trees. Oh, my word. (laughs) So it literally could just be a patch. Oh, my gosh. But it's got two trees, so hey, it's an island. That's hilarious. Yeah. Kelly, I think we could afford an island like that even. I think we can. Then we could run around (laughs) telling people, oh, yeah, we own an island. (laughs) They're going, wow, you're doing really well with the podcast there. (laughs) A little fun fact for those of you who like to wander down conspiracy and secret society rabbit holes is that the group Skull and Bones owns one of the Thousand Islands, Deer Island. They have a 40-acre retreat there, but it's not well kept, and several buildings on the island are in ruins. Some of the waters around the islands are very treacherous. Leak Island Channel is one of those places with currents so strong that ice rarely forms during even the coldest days of winter. 
The A.E. Vickery was a schooner that struck a shoal on August 15, 1889, and sank near the Rock Island Lighthouse. The Rock Island Lighthouse was once watched over by William Johnston, who was called the Pirate of the Thousand Islands. Before becoming keeper in 1853, he got caught up in attacking a British male steamer in 1838. He set the steamer on fire and ran it aground on Peel Island. Johnston was declared an outlaw by the U.S. government and captured and put on trial. He eventually received a pardon and then went on to become a keeper at the lighthouse, serving for eight years. The lighthouse was changed and moved three times because it wasn't as visible as it needed to be. Hence, why the A.E. Vickery sunk. So with the sinking of the A.E. Vickery, a river pilot named Henry Weber Jr. had just boarded the boat and apparently wasn't very good at his job. The captain was so angry when his ship hit the shoal that he grabbed a gun and pointed it at Weber and fired the bullet ricocheting. The captain and four crewmen managed to get to shore aboard a yawl boat. Now, I'm not sure if they let Henry Weber Jr. get on with them or how he got off the boat. But yeah, you'd have these river pilots get on your boats when you'd come into these areas because they were supposed to know the route. Right. They're supposed to help you guide it. (laughs) It could get you through safely. And he didn't do very well hitting that shoal. But as we said, that Rock Island lighthouse was really hard to see, too. So I don't know if it was entirely his fault. Good thing the bullet missed. Various parts of the schooner have been retrieved over the years and have been placed in various museums. Another of the wrecks occurred in October of 1912, and this was the SS Keystorm. This was a cargo steamer with a load of coal, and it was traveling in fog when it struck a shoal. The ship sank over five hours. The wooden sidewall steamer, the Islander, caught fire while at dock at Alexandria Bay in 1909 and sank quickly. The America was a steel drill barge that sank after an explosion in 1932, and the King Horn schooner ran aground in 1897. So the islands have seen their share of shipwrecks, Kelly. It would seem so. Another schooner that ran into some trouble, we aren't sure of the name, but legend claims that the crew came down with cholera and the schooner parked itself off Ghost Island. The crew disembarked and most of them died and were buried on the island. The island is said to be haunted now because of that incident. The explosion of the America is actually blamed on the phantoms of the island since it was moored near the island. Another barge that was carrying cattle is said to have disappeared near the island. Another sunken barge happened near Ghost Island in 1926. People believe the island was cursed for sure. Despite the shipwrecks, boating among the islands has always been popular. And Walt Whitman describes this wonderfully in A Song of Joys. In his book of poetry, Leaves of Grass, Oh, boating on the rivers, the voyage down the St. Lawrence, the superb scenery, the steamers, the ship sailing, the Thousand Islands, the occasional timber raft, and the raftsmen with long-reaching sweeping oars, the little huts on the rafts, and the steam of smoke when they cook supper at evening. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Certainly. As long as we don't crash and burn. Or sink, that is. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Ghost Island isn't the only reputed haunted spot here. We found several other locations that harbor spirits. For those of you that are executive producers, you already heard my little spiel on the bonus cast that was from this week. But when I first started looking at this stuff, Kelly, there is the Thousand Islands and then there's the Thousand Islands region. And the Thousand Island region, it takes you like three hours to drive from one point to the next, basically. It is a huge swath with lots and lots of cities that aren't even in what I would consider where the Thousand Islands literally are. I started researching all these different places and I'm like, you know, this city is kind of a little ways away. I don't know that it really counts. So I made the scope just the places that are right where the islands are. 
we go down a little bit south of this to hit Sackett Harbor. But otherwise, this is mostly in that area. So if you're an executive producer, you got to hear about a couple other places that are considered part of the Seaway region that's part of the Thousand Islands there. But they won't be in this one. So there might be some people that are like, well, there's this place and there's this place. They didn't include those. That's why we just tried to keep our scope very focused. A little more pinpointed. Yes. So we're going to start here with Saget's Harper Battlefield State Historic Site. Sackett's Harbor got its start in 1801 and was named for the man who founded it, Augustus Sackett. And he actually spelled his last name with two T's. Today, it's only spelled with the one. This was a busy port in the Thousand Islands, and that's probably what made it attractive to the Marines, Army, and Navy, as they all chose this as headquarters during the War of 1812. This base would focus on protecting the Northern Harbor. The Sackett Harbor battlefield was a place where hundreds of men lost their lives. The Battle of Sackett's Harbor took place on May 29, 1813. The British had the early upper hand in the battle, causing the militia to abandon their weapons and retreat. But the Americans regrouped and repelled the British. There was a major issue that happened during the battle, though, that would lead to consequences later. Some British cannon fire hit the shipyards, and an officer there assumed that the fort had fallen, since the British were now targeting the shipyard. He decided it would be better to destroy a ship that was currently under construction and a bunch of supplies than let the enemy get a hold of them. So, unfortunately, they found out later, uh, you didn't need to do any of that. The ship was able to be salvaged later, but the supplies were a lost cause. And later on, they were going to need those supplies, and they didn't have them anymore. The first U.S. steamboat to be built for the Great Lakes, the Ontario, was constructed in the shipyard here in 1817. The battlefield was cleared and leveled and turned into farmland, and then later was turned into the state historic park. People who visit claim that, like most battlefields, this one is haunted. People see strange lights out here at night and see shadow figures. The sounds of gunfire and cannons are heard. The Northern New York Shadow Chasers investigated here in 2008 and caught EVP with several responses to questions that they asked. Next, we have the Madison Barracks, which housed the soldiers during the War of 1812 and was built in 1813 out of native limestone. The barracks were named for President James Madison, who actually did visit the fort that bore his name. President U.S. Grant served here as a young second lieutenant, and today his barracks are marked with a plaque in his honor. Because of the military presence here, this was the third most populous area of New York, right behind Albany and New York City in 1814. The barracks remained active and were used through to the end of World War II. And a couple of fun facts about this island is that chloroform was invented here, and the father of American mixology, bartender Jerry Thomas, was born here in 1830. Bless him. Now, wouldn't it have been interesting if he actually was the one who invented chloroform, too? (laughs) I was just thinking that. (laughs) I can knock you out in two different ways. Today, the barracks have been transformed into the Creekside Apartments. And there's also an inn, restaurant, and marina here. The historic district is home to many buildings dating back to the 19th century. Several spirits of American soldiers have been seen as though they're standing guard over the building. People who live there and neighbors that live nearby claim to see a man holding a lantern standing on a balcony late at night. The residual sounds of a battle are heard like cannons and muskets firing. And sometimes the screams of men chill the ears of anyone who hears them. Next, we have the Isle of Pines. This is a small island off the shore of Fisher's Landing on the St. Lawrence River between Clayton and Alexandria Bay. The island is just big enough for a large three-story main house and a large two-story boathouse. Rose Claudia Summers here with her family that includes daughter Danielle and son Anthony because her grandfather, Nicholas R. Cobasello, bought the island in the early 1940s. 
Nicholas had been working in the area building roads to the Thousand Islands Bridge across Wellesley Island. The island already had the structures on it, and the main house is clearly Victorian in design with a large mansard roof. When he moved on to the island, he lived in the boathouse and invited a priesthood to come live in the main house. There were pieces of furniture and decorative items in the house. Kelly, you know, the Victorian era was kind of gaudy, and, well, they liked to have a lot of (laughs) nudes when it came to their furniture. Well, then. Whether it was something that was carved on a couch or a lamp or something of that nature. And you have all these priests who have moved into this house. And they were just slightly offended because of these nudes that were featured on all these different things. So they took these items out the back door and either burned them or threw them into the river. Alrighty then. Needless to say, Nicholas was not pleased and he kicked the priests out. I mean, if you're burning the furniture and things, maybe we don't want you in the house. It's one thing to, he's probably thinking, you know, these guys aren't going to have any parties and stuff, so they're not going to tear the place up. And then they tear (laughs) the place up. Right. Norm Wagner, who is a Clayton historian, says that music has been heard coming from the ballroom, which no longer hosts music and dances. He said, there were reports that people were hearing ballroom style music. It's not coming from Foxy's restaurant, which is just a short distance away. It's just unexplained music. Now, we're getting ready to tell you about the fact that ghost hunters went here, and that's how we know about the hauntings that are going on here. Kelly, I always love it when you have investigators that try to explain away things like, duh. So (laughs) with reports of this music going on, Steve is standing outside, and he's like, well, you know, you can kind of hear stuff coming from other islands and stuff, so maybe they're just hearing music from other islands. And I'm thinking to myself, don't you think they already know that? (laughs) I mean, I would think if you live out on an island and you can hear the music and stuff coming from the other islands or people talking or doing whatever, wouldn't that be the first thing you would think about and be like, oh, I'm probably just here in the place over there. That's why I think this guy was specific, that it's not coming from the restaurant. (laughs) All right. All right. Quit picking on Steve. (laughs) I just, when we were watching that, he said that I went, you think they haven't already thought that, Steve? I mean, come on. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Hey, Moore, who are you calling? Sunbright Realty. I'm in the market for a new mausoleum. Mort, that's a different business model. But Sunbright helps people find their dream home. They do, but not that kind of dream home. When it comes to buying or selling a home, probably the most important decision you could make is... Who's your realtor? I mean, you need somebody you can trust. Most definitely. Broker owner Lou Salvamini has over 20 years combined experience managing homes and real estate throughout the Central Florida area. And he can help maintain your home with termite and pest detection and control and help you with your lawn maintenance. We trust Lou with our property. He's like a one-stop shop for your home. You can find out more at sunbrightrealty.com and sunbrightservices.com. Looking for your dream home? Look on the bright side. Daniel Parody, Rose's daughter, greeted the ghost hunters when they arrived in 2009, and she took them on a tour of the place. The Claudias had won a contest hosted by the ghost hunters, which afforded them the opportunity to have their property investigated. I think it was like their Halloween special. They presented three different locations and then asked viewers to vote which one they should go and do an investigation on, and this is the one that won. The crew invited musician Meatloaf to join them for the investigation, and they said they didn't think he was going to actually show up, and he did. Daniel took the crew to the kids' room in the boathouse first and told them that she saw an apparition in that room of a little girl standing at the foot of the bed, and she watched the ghost run through the wall. 
She said the girl was glowing. The boathouse has a ballroom where social gatherings were hosted. There's a bedroom off the ballroom where guests have seen apparitions by the bed, and another bedroom where people have felt both hot and cold spots. In an upper area overlooking the ballroom, the band used to play, and people hear various musical instruments up there, even something like a spoon banging on a pot. And the ghost hunters actually caught that on one of their EVP. Interesting. Yeah, you hear like, I don't know, it was like five or six bangs. And when they played it back for her, you know, they show the evidence at the end. She was like, yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about. It sounds like a spoon hitting a pot. Because at first I'm like, what is that noise? Because it didn't sound like somebody like knocking on wood. And then when she said that, I went, oh, you're right. It does kind of sound like what a spoon hitting a pot would sound like. Anthony, her brother, told the ghost hunters that he was coming out of the shower in the boathouse when he heard clanging up in that attic area. And it startled him really bad. And then he got angry. So he marched up to the attic with fists raised and said he wasn't going to take this. This is his house and he wasn't afraid. He then watched a small section of two by four pick itself up, flew across the railing and popped him on the top of his head. (laughs) I'll show you. (laughs) So much for your fists up in the air and not being afraid. He was so scared. He hopped into a boat and drove over the mainland and slept on the dock. (laughs) Oh, my. I don't know what I would do if if I literally saw it picking itself up and I can't see what's got it and then it comes hurling at me, it would scare me pretty good too. But if I just all of a sudden got popped by it, I would be like, did it tip over? Did it, you know, I'd first try to explain it some other way. Well, and I wouldn't be one to go marching up there like, come at me, bro. No. With that kind of attitude because I don't know. See what happens? Exactly. And then he said, I'm not afraid. Well, you were afraid now, weren't you? The main house has its haunts too. People hear disembodied footsteps, see shadow figures, hear unexplained noises, and watch as the lights flicker. A niece and nephew who were staying at the house told their mom that they had been playing with a dead priest in the living room. That's when you hope that (laughs) it's actually a ghost. (laughs) I hope a priest didn't come over and have a heart attack and collapse and they're just playing. Hey, let's play doctor. Oh, my word. (laughs) Want to do surgery? (laughs) I rearticulated him. Oh, (laughs) mom, look what we did. Terrible. We are terrible. Up on the third floor, a man heard a woman ask, can you help me? There was nobody on that floor with him. Anthony saw a woman looking down from a window on the third floor. Again, when nobody was up there. Amy Bruni said of the investigation, it was probably one of the most memorable hunts I've been on. I didn't think it was a scary place, though. Amy and the guys had fun giving Steve grief about spiders, as they found quite a few during the investigation, and we mean a lot. Steve does not like spiders any more than I do. <laughs> there were a lot that there they were, were filming. A lot. And they weren't just like crawling on the walls. Amy's like, they're like coming down with their web and hanging in front of your face and knocking you around. And it was like, whoa. They were knocking them around. <laughs> well, you know, knocking the spiders. No, they were knocking the spiders around. The spiders weren't knocking spiders them around. Punch you in the face. <laughs> Spider said, knock you out. <laughs> Amy and Chris investigated in the boathouse first. They heard footsteps like someone walking on the dock. But after trying to recreate the sound, they realized it had to be coming from inside. Chris and Amy saw a shadow in the corner of the ceiling at the same time. They called Jason and said, can you help us debunk this? So Jason came in and they have lighting with the cameras and stuff. And so it was throwing his shadow up. And so they had him like back up to a point where they said that's exactly how the shadow would have looked. So then they had a feel for where something had to be standing to throw the shadow like that. Right. And it had to have walked like right in front of them. Oh. And they're like, nothing walked in front of them, of (laughs) course. So it was kind of weird. Grant and Jason investigated in a room on the third floor first and immediately got spikes on the EMF detector. 
All the batteries in their cameras and flashlights went dead in here as well. Jason wanted to test the EMF, so he said he was going to count to three, and he wanted the spirit to light up the EMF when he got to three, and that's exactly what happened. The EMF indicated that there were both male and female spirits in the room. Meatloaf was sitting on the bed in this room, and he felt something unseen sit down on the bed behind him. It's so funny to have a line where you say, Meatloaf was sitting on the bed. Who put the meatloaf on the bed? (laughs) They moved out into the hall, and Meatloaf felt drawn to a room. And when he entered, he felt the hair on top of his arm stick up. He used an EMF to communicate. The first question was to figure out if this was the spirit seen looking out of the window. And it not only indicated it was not, but that it was a man. They asked for the spirit to move something, and there was a loud audible bang. They asked for it to do it again, and they heard another bang. They traced the sound to a door, and they believe it was being moved to bang the doorknob on the wall. It seemed like the spirit was saying it was a priest. The crew all felt like this place was definitely haunted. The other weird thing that happened is that Meatloaf had gone into the bathroom and he set his water down. I don't know. I think it was like on a ledge near the window or something. And he came back out and he'd said something like, can you move the water bottle for me? Prove that you're, you know, in there or whatever. They went in later and it was tucked behind the toilet, like where you would not just set a water bottle down. So they're like, (laughs) how did it get there? So it was very interesting and uh, definitely a place that I'm sure they were glad that it won because it gave them a lot of activity. And then our final place is Bolt Castle. And this is on Hart Island. There are actually six structures on Hart Island in Alexandria Bay. There's the Bolt Castle, the Powerhouse, the Ulster Tower, the Henry, the Arch, and a stone gazebo. The castle's named for the man who had it built, George Bolt. George Bolt was born in Prussia in 1851 and immigrated to America in 1864. He would become a self-made millionaire, an influential hotelier, by starting at the bottom. He worked in a kitchen in New York before being asked to manage the dining room at the Philadelphia Club, an exclusive gentleman's club in Philadelphia. He bought his first hotel in Philadelphia in 1881 and soon bought the competing hotel on the opposite corner. He eventually tore that hotel down and built the largest hotel in the city, the Bellevue Stratford Hotel, in 1904. That still stands today as the Hyatt. Then he met up with the Astor Cousins in New York, William Waldorf and John Jacob, who each owned adjoining hotels, the Waldorf Hotel and Astoria Hotel. Bolt leased the Astoria and eventually merged the two hotels under his management as the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which became famous for its Waldorf salad. The Empire State Building now stands where the hotel had once been, so it no longer is there. This is where one of the legends about Thousand Island dressing comes in. The dressing is made from a variety of ingredients depending on who's making it and generally includes mayonnaise, olive oil, lemon juice, ketchup, vinegar, pickles, and cream. In this version, Bolt and a chef are credited with creating the dressing from ingredients that the Waldorf Astoria's kitchen had on hand when Bolt realized he had forgotten to order dressing for the salad. He instructed the hotel's maitre d', Oscar Shirky, to put it on the menu. The dressing was named for the Thousand Island region as this had a special place in Bolt's heart. However, the chef didn't include the recipe in a book he wrote during that time period, and so some people wonder if this is true. Another legend claims that a woman named Sophia Lalonde was getting creative in her kitchen and whipped up the dressing for her husband's shore dinner. He was a fishing guide and introduced it to actress May Irwin, who asked for the recipe, and the dressing became famous. Sophia's name comes up again as an innkeeper of the Herald Hotel in Clayton, New York, and it was here that she introduced Sophia's sauce. Another story claims that the original recipe had a base of French dressing, 
and appears in the 1965 edition of the Fanny Farmer Cookbook. There are so many stories that sociologist and professor Michael Bell worked with his graduate students to determine the true origin and found that it really depended on the region which story was told. There was no written historical record to follow. So it seems there are as many origins of Thousand Island dressing as there are varieties. There's so many different things you can throw into Thousand Island dressing. I mean, it had this huge list and I'm like, I don't know that I'd put some of that stuff in there. I know that there were times when my mom ran out of hers and she would actually take French dressing and doctor it up. Basically, it tasted like Thousand Island. And I would bet that she probably got that idea from the Fanny Farmer cookbook because that was kind of like your good housekeeping cookbook. I mean, everybody had that. Sure. Yeah, there's people who put eggs in there and apples and walnuts and all kinds of stuff. I was like, ooh, I don't know if I'd put all that in there. Although, I guess if you're putting on a salad that has that stuff, what's the difference? Waldorf salad. Yeah. Louise Carrer was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1862, and she came from a prosperous family. Her father was the steward of the Philadelphia Club, and he was the one who hired George Bolt. Bolt was 26 at the time, and Louise was 14... So this is one of those stories that's kind of hard to May talk December. about. <laughs> yeah, about it being a romantic get-together. Love soon blossomed between the two. It was a different time. The two were married in June of 1877, and they went on to have two children, George Charles Jr. and Louise Clover. Bolt loved Louise deeply, and she adored him. The two were inseparable, and Louise helped George in the hotel business, guiding him to adding cut flowers and candles on tables. She helped with decorating the Waldorf Astoria as well. The family took a vacation in 1895 through the Thousand Islands, and Louise fell in love with Hart Island, which at the time was spelled H-A-R-T. Today it's spelled the other way. Bolt bought the island for her and quickly started working on plans to build her a dream house. She was his princess, and he was going to make her a castle. I'd do the same thing for you, Kelly. I know you would, darling. <laughs> Although I don't think I could build a castle on our little island that only has two trees on it. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe a miniature. <laughs> Maybe. Construction didn't start until 1900, but George hired 300 construction workers so that it would get done quickly. It didn't get done quickly. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. The castle was nearly complete after four years, and tragedy struck. Louise had been becoming increasingly frail. As the years of building continued, Louise's light faded, and in January 1904, Louise passed away. George was completely bereft and immediately ordered construction to cease on the castle. He never stepped foot on Hart Island again. And ironically, this heartbreaking story led to the island's spelling to be changed to H-E-A-R-T. The 60,000 square foot castle with 120 rooms sat unfinished. Bolt died in 1916 and the castle sat abandoned for 73 years. Then the Thousand Islands Bridge Authority bought the property and restored the building that had been left to the elements. Bolt Castle is today a popular destination for visitors and wedding receptions. The ballroom is one of the most elaborate spaces in the castle, adorned with state-of-the-art crown molding and designed with dramatic lighting. The billiards room has carved wood walls and fireplace mantle. All the family suites have a closet, bathroom, and private entry to the second-floor balcony. The grand hall has a stained-glass dome. The floors are covered in Italian Carrera marble, and the ceiling is molded plaster with unique designs. A grand staircase leads to the second floor, branching into two sides. The library was probably going to be Mr. Bolt's favorite spot, as his office was always filled with books. The details in this room are amazing. The fireplace mantle is made from American chestnut, and carvings in that tell the story of Hansel and Gretel. 
There's a boy on one side and a girl on the other, and in the center above the fireplace is a woman with a witch-like nose. The mahogany wainscoting in the room features carvings of a genie's lamp, a pirate ship, and an image of Bolt Castle. Sounds like a fun house. That is so sad. I know. I just, it breaks your heart that he was building this for her. And so when she died, he just totally gave up on it. And it was turning into this gorgeous, it's huge. I mean, 60,000 square feet just to leave it there and abandoned for all those years. I'm surprised they were able to come back and make it into what it is today. They had to um, do like special molding on the ceilings to get it so that all those, that molded plaster that had all these unique designs so they could get it back to what the original would have been. And they were just thankful that enough of it was saved, that the elements hadn't completely destroyed it. They were able to mold some of it and then repeat it. Right. See what it's supposed to be and then use that as an impression. It's not surprising that Bolt Castle is said to be haunted. Louise never got to enjoy her castle, so why wouldn't she visit in the afterlife? And George missed his beloved. Brides, guests, tourists, and employees all claim to have seen Louise, and these sightings started all the way back in the early 1900s. A lady in white is seen walking near the water by the boathouse. The lights in the castle turn on by themselves, and disembodied footsteps are heard. The apparition of George has been seen walking in the corridors of his massive castle. Perhaps he wants to make sure that the continued restorations go according to his plan, because they are still restoring it. It's taken them a really long time to do it, and it's still got that going on today. Amy Johnson, who suggested this location, shared, After my mother died, my sister and another person visiting my parents' home in the Thousand Islands both saw my mother near their beds. When I slept in her room, I had her and my father's ashes on a table in the room. I told my mother I was happy to be there with her, but to please not show herself, as I wasn't sure I could handle it. I guess I'm a bit wimpy. But I thought, isn't that cool that her mother still seems to be hanging out at the house there? Yeah, very cool. Yeah. The Thousand Islands are a beautiful grouping of islands with lots of fun and adventures to be had there. So much history is here as well. Is some of that history haunted? That That is for you to decide. And as I was looking through all this stuff, I found the Clayton Island Tours. They offer glass-bottom boat tours through the islands, and they sound really cool. It's like a a two-and-a-half-hour deal. Maybe you'll see some of those nudes that were thrown off into the water. (laughs) (laughs) The main reason why they have the glass bottom is you can see the shipwrecks. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I was like, ooh, I'd want to do that. Although I don't ever see us being anywhere near the Thousand Islands, but looks like a gorgeous area to hang out, especially in the summer. Love to have you guys hang out at our website, historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Underneath the old slave house episode that we did on YouTube, a woman named Jill commented, I went there with my mother and grandmother during July 1969. I saw an apparition of a girl in a tattered dress. She stood on the far right porch or left side as viewed while walking up to the door. For some reason, I believe she was 14 years old And though I was just entering my ninth year, I assumed she'd been a slave there during her life. I was startled, obviously, but when I turned toward my mother to point out the girl, it dawned on me that my mother couldn't see her. Turning then toward my grandmother, I saw she was gazing at me. She didn't speak, but merely looked at the ghost girl, looked at me again, and shrugged as if seeing such images wasn't unusual for her. I've tried to be a rather open-minded person in my life, yet it took years before it dawned on me that speaking of and sharing what I saw that day and how it affected my life was important. So for many years, I shared the experience with few, likely rightly believing that only those who've also witnessed such things could understand its consequence. Regardless, I do now share. 
The slave girl, after all, taught me so much about freedom and how horrid it must have been to not have it. All she did was stare at me. She didn't move, didn't speak, but she appeared as any restless such spirit might. Sad, very sad. Some 30 years later, I suddenly decided to drive to a nearby tavern and have a soda. There was only one customer that afternoon whom I sat down next to. While the bartender busied herself talking on the phone, the customer and I began to talk. I'm from Kentucky, just passing through on my way to visit my sister in Oregon, he said. I told him that I'd been to Kentucky and to southern Illinois as a child, visiting my great-great and great-great-great-grandmothers. I also told him that I'd visited an old slave house, to which he responded, Oh, there's lots of those. At that I said, Not like this one. Well, I jumped right off my stool when the man then asked, You saw the slave girl, didn't you? Wow, I couldn't believe he'd said that. How did he know? He said that he and his family had gone to this old slave house too, and that his sister had insisted she'd seen a slave girl ghost, a 14-year-old slave girl. Very cool. His parents were apparently so upset by their daughter's claim because neither they nor their son saw the ghost that they took their daughter to speak to a local mental health counselor. Oh, Oh, my. That was not good. Surely, surprisingly to them, the doctor said something close to, oh, the slave girl? I've had a number of patients come to me after seeing the same thing, many thinking they'd imagined the vision since their companions couldn't see her seems, like my mother, not everyone can see such things, or perhaps each person witnesses similarly touching visions in their own time or way, but who knows? All I know for certain is that I believe in a loving God, and I believe such seeming restless spirits as that of the girl may have somehow been blessed to be a teacher for a time, having taught me, and I imagine that tavern customer's sister, something about the meaning of freedom and how to value it. Never before that day had I searched the internet using Old Slave House as search terms, but I did that day. I was further down away when a picture of the house, the old slave house, popped right up. It's too bad the state cannot afford to maintain the home. So many others might learn from it, even if they don't see a girl standing on the porch. God bless that young girl. I pray she can rest in peace. I love that Jill shared that with us. Just very touching there. Yeah. And Kelly, I have to say, the old slave house has probably gotten the most comments of any video that we have up on YouTube. It's really a house that touches people. A lot of people have been there. Very nice. Want to let you guys know the virtual trick-or-treat is underway. You have until October 1st to let Wes know that you want to be a part of it. So join us in the Spooktacular crew and you can get an email shot off to him and get all set up for that. He's going to be assigning people their virtual trick-or-treaters pretty soon. They're victims. Yes, they're victims. I'm sorry. I forgot that's what they (laughs) call each other. And then our Flash Fiction contest will be coming to an end here pretty soon. You only have until the 9th to get your entry in, and that's at midnight, Eastern Time. Thousand word limit. Has to be creepy, spooky, science fiction, something like that, along an R rating kind of level. And we will have three winners, so get that in. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We have two people to welcome into the cemetery. First, we have Tracy Clausen. We're going to be putting her in a chest tomb. And Keely Gonzalez, we're going to be putting you in a garden crypt. And in three months, you're going to be getting your HGB logo mug. Everyone needs one of those, especially with winter coming. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We really couldn't do it without you guys. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts.
in the months of... <laughs> the dressing was named for the Thousand Island region. Region? It's a region. Is that like your tourism? It's, like it's tourism. a region. It's regionized. <laughs> Bolt died in 1916, and the castle sat aben- abandoned. <laughs> abandoned. It's a bendigo. It's a different way to say it, right, Kelly? <laughs> Meshach, Shadrach, and Abendigo. There you go. <laughs> I-, I don't think there was a fire in an oven anywhere here, though. Well, the billiards room has carved wood walls and a fire mantel place. <laughs> fire mantel place. <laughs> that mantel place is on fire. <laughs> She picking up on what I just laid down. I'm like, it took me a minute, but I was like, what? What did she say? 